Once upon a time, there was a man that had two sons. And the younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Have you noticed that we are incredibly physical beings? The human body is a fascinating thing to study. Did you know that your nose can remember 50,000 different scents? Did you know that there are more than 100,000 miles of blood vessels in your body? Apparently, 50% of the strength of your hand actually comes from your pinky finger. Or here's a fun one. The human body contains enough fat to make seven bars of soap. Now, I think some of us are probably a little cleaner than others. Thanks, CJ. (laughs) So speaking of clean, you get a new top layer of skin every 30 days, and your whole body replaces all of its cells once every seven years. Messages from the human brain travel along nerves up to 200 miles an hour. We just finished a series from the book of Ephesians describing the church as a body, That we have many different parts to our body. And then when all those parts work together well, that the body can move and walk and even run in the right direction. But what happens when the body doesn't work so well? Our passage for this new series is again full of body imagery. In Proverbs 6 we read this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, or eyes that look down on others. A lying tongue, or a tongue that can't be trusted. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes, or conceives evil plans. Feet that are rush, quick to rush, or to sprint toward evil. A false witness who pours out lies, or a false witness who breathes out lies. And a person who stirs up conflict in the community. Here it shows we are physical beings. Every single one of these vices is represented by a posture of our physicality. Murder, for example, is represented by hands that shed innocent blood. Selfishness is represented by a heart that causes the feet to rush toward evil. And today, today we begin with the sin with which all of the others originate. With the sin of pride. Haughty eyes that look down on others. So what is pride? Well, in the ancient Middle East, inheritance was all based on property. And as the parable of the prodigal son opens, the son of a farmer is without warning or provocation demanding his inheritance. Now back then, just like today, to ask for your inheritance is kind of brash and not even a little bit insulting. It's like saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so that I could have your money. I like to imagine that as soon as Jesus begins to tell this story, we can hear from his audience this audible gasp. The nerve of this child. How dare he? So the question is, what happened here? How did this child get to a place where he's demanding his father's money? Pride. For to define pride, we'll start with the younger son. Pride is a fixation on oneself, on one's life, and on one's desires. 
Now, clearly, that's not a healthy thing. But this sin is the primal sin. It's the one that comes first on the list in Proverbs. When we become fixated on ourselves, everything else cascades from that. Every other sin on that list is not possible unless we already have a distorted view of ourselves. If I think that my identity has some greater importance than that of everyone else around me, it follows that I will do whatever I can to, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, vaunt myself up. Not gossip, not deceit, not selfishness or anger or even murder will I stop at to keep myself vaunted up. So not long after that, Jesus continues, and imagine how awkward that must have been. The son just doesn't take the money and go. He's still home for a little while. Not long after that, the younger son gets together all he had, in other words, he sells all his stuff, and set off for a distant country and squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So it's going great for a while. The guy lives it up, partying and living however he felt. But this isn't just him going on a road trip. Not only does he physically leave, but he's also leaving behind his family and his family values. He's not just insulting his father. He's actually betraying the community and family values with which he grew up. Really, it's a betrayal of his father and his whole, his whole community. But the money then, of course, dries up. And to add insult to injury, the land to which he's moved gets hit with this famine. He's stuck. He can't leave, but he also can't eat. So he hires himself out and... We have another term in our, in our vocabulary for hiring himself out like this, but it's not employment. We call this indentured servitude. Now, back then, you could sell yourself to do slave labor and then hopefully, eventually, pay your way out of that. Not that that happened very often. But there's actually even more to this slavery. Remember that Jesus' audience is Jewish. They don't do pigs. Pigs were unclean for the Jews. And so when the parable says that he hires himself out to do something like tending the pigs for somebody, Jesus is saying not only is he selling himself into slavery, he does it in the midst of a further betrayal of his family's values. So things keep getting worse and worse. And of course, what happens when the resources get thin, like in a famine? Nobody's going to be generous to the beggars either. So he can't get help. He's trapped in a prison of his own making. Henry Nouwen writes, I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. Why do I keep ignoring the place of true love and persist in looking for it elsewhere? So when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Now for just a minute, let's acknowledge what an act of courage that this really is. No matter what his motivation, something has clicked in his mind. And he literally turns around and he goes back home. Back to the man who raised him. Back to his family and back to his community. And I think that this requires an awful lot of courage. Because his community is still there. His family is still there. His brother is still there. And they saw what he did to his father. And they saw who he was when he left. But he realizes suddenly that he has sunk about as low as it's possible to go. That he's not even really human anymore. I mean, the passage says that he's asking, he wishes he could eat the food that those pigs are eating. So he's got nothing left to lose. And he realizes now where his choices have led him. And so in the midst of this famine and the poverty and in the slavery, he remembers his father. And the younger son chooses no longer to wallow in his lostness or in his sin. And so he gets up and he goes. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him before the son has said anything. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Henry Nouwen continues by saying, Truly, I, do I want to be so totally forgiven that a completely new way of life becomes possible? Do I want to break away from my deep-rooted rebellion against God and surrender myself so absolutely to God's love that a new person could emerge? Again, Jesus' audience would have gasped. Fathers don't just accept back their children who have been in rebellion, much less suffer the indignity of running to meet them with forgiveness in hand. But then there's another twist. Instead of accepting his son's surrender into a life of indentured servitude in the hands of his own family, the father throws a welcome home party and gives him the signs of highest honor in the household with the robe and the ring. And this is the happy ending that everybody wants but didn't think that they could get. The son is reconciled to his father. He's learned who he is and he's finally home where he should be, celebrating his safe return with his family. But there's a problem. See, the parable doesn't start out talking about one son. It starts out talking about two. And the second son isn't actually here. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. 
Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. When this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate so, and to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I, seem, I think at first it seems understandable that this older brother is angry. He lists what I would say are some fairly legitimate feeling reasons. He left. He left you. He took half of everything and then blew it on all of this horrible stuff. I was here. But here's the problem with that. The second half begins with the older son in one of the fields which doesn't seem like a really big deal until you realize that in this culture, it was the older son's job to go and get wayward younger children and then bring them home. He never left. See, pride pride can look a lot of different ways. While the younger son ran away and he inflicts this deep wound on his family, the elder son remained at home with his half, That's what it said in the beginning, right? That the father divided the estate between the boys. They are now standing on the elder son's property, partying with the elder son's food and drinks. Everything I have is yours, said the father, because he already gave it to him. The elder son hasn't physically been in prison this whole time. He hasn't been in slavery. He never ran away. But he too is in a prison of his own making. He even tells his father that he feels like a slave, that he's been slaving away for his father, which would tell you a little bit of what about he actually thinks about his father. It's as if both sons have completely lost their perspective on who they are. They're sons of their father. But the younger son demanded what wasn't his and then ran away. But in the midst of losing everything, he remembers who he is and he returns home. But then there's this older son. He doesn't remember who he is as he goes about his father's business. And even while his father is right in front of him, the elder son has been looking down, as our passage says, with haughty eyes on his younger brother. But more importantly... He's been looking down with haughty eyes on his father, too. And while the younger son literally turns around, which is the Bible's way of saying he repented, to come and beg for forgiveness, the elder son never does because he doesn't even realize he's lost. I remember when my sister and I were little, And one day my sister and I were playing, and suddenly she decided to start swearing. Now, I have no idea why she decided to do this. It's not like we were fighting her or anything. I don't know, maybe she just wanted to try it out. But I remember getting up and going to tell my parents. See, I was the good boy. I was the one who didn't swear. I was the one who said polite things, not like her. See, I'm better than that. And I was so proud that I wasn't the one in trouble. Until suddenly I was. And that's the true tragedy of pride. True pride often prevents us from seeing that we are even prideful. 
C.S. Lewis wrote that those who do not think about their own sins make up for it by thinking incessantly about the sins of others. You know, oh man, that person is so full of themselves. I am so glad I'm not like that at all. So it's fitting that in the path of the younger son, that is where we see the antithesis of pride. That is where we see pride's opposite. The wisdom of humility. Yeah, it's a movable set. It does all kinds of cool stuff. Just wait. (laughs) Pride and humility actually share a common uh, hinge, as it were. Both of them are about our identity. Both of them are about our perspective on ourselves and on the world. Who is God? Who are we? But while pride answers that our humanity is more important than that of others, the wisdom of humility places our perspective of ourselves in its proper place. See, wise, humble people see themselves in a bigger picture. They don't see other struggling people as enemies to be defeated or as resources to be drained for the purpose of survival. They see others instead as they know God sees everyone, as children of the Creator. Others are not less than me. But as an aside, others are also not more than me either. There's another kind of pride called false humility or victim mentality that places others above us, where we grovel as worms, but not humility, because in such a posture we are still entirely obsessed with ourselves and with our brokenness. See, true humility places us within the rest of humanity. We, like others, are simply the weird and wonderful people whom God loves. But humility is not simply a theoretical thing. It's also a pragmatic thing. When we see ourselves as God sees us, we are free to see and to treat others as God sees them and treats them. In the parable, the younger son saw his father, family, and community as a stepping stone to what he wanted, while the elder son saw his brother and his father, who embraced the prodigal, as beneath him. And that's why we learn about humility not from the older son, but from the younger son who is able to find a proper perspective on himself and return back to his father's house. So a, a better title for this parable might be the parable of the lost sons. But we must remember that the parable is not really about the sons. They're important in the story. But Jesus told this parable because all the way back at the beginning of chapter 15, where this parable is in Luke, the Pharisees are leveling a scathing critique at Jesus because, and I quote, he welcomes and then eats with sinners. So no, this is not a parable about either son. This is a parable about the character of the father. So the difference between pride and the wisdom of humility in us can be seen in our reaction to that reality. That Jesus welcomes sinners and then eats with them. Because that's what the Father did. Do we? 
Are we that reckless? Which side of these prison bars are we really on? See, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not consider being equal with God something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings. When he found himself on the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so God highly honored him and gave him a name above all names that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven, on earth, and under the earth might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So maybe today is the day we abandon the lies that we tell ourselves. Some of us like to lie to ourselves and say that we are better. That somehow what we want or what we like or what we demand demands special treatment or demands that we look down on others. But others of us believe the lie that we are somehow less than others as well, obsessing on our weaknesses and on our faults and on our inadequacies. Haven't you heard? Christ died for sinners such as all of us. See, God loves you. And God loves the person next to you. And God loves the person across the aisle and across the train tracks. And the person you hate, God loves them too. If we are to become wise, humble people, we must embrace both our history of making bad choices, of distancing ourselves from God and from one another, And we must also embrace the forgiveness that is offered to us and embrace the forgiveness that is offered to others. Because Jesus is telling us who the Father is. He's telling us that the Father wants to welcome us home, pleads for us to come home, wants to celebrate when we do come home, no matter where we have been or what we have done or who we've become, and then even rushes out to welcome us and celebrate with us in the most undignified way. Jesus is telling us that we need only look to the Father again and embrace who the Father tells us that we are, that we are God's children. Would you pray with me? Holy God, it feels so easy to acknowledge sometimes that we don't measure up. But Lord, in the midst of that, would you protect us from that false humility? Would you help us to see who you are calling us to be? As we confess that we are broken, Lord, help us also to confess that we are your children. Help us to be willing to celebrate the prodigal who comes home. Help us be willing to celebrate the people around us who are already home. Help us to be willing to go search for those children who have been lost. That we would welcome them home into our midst with open arms. Help us to see us, help us to see others as you see us and you see them. God, it's in your name we pray these things together. Amen.